0: Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best places they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and a new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any of your devices. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. We're going to go back to the well with some of our favorite topics today. We've got the Mets. We've got some Lance Lynn. We've got some weird abstract baseball discussion with Ben Lindbergh. Uh, so let's dive right in with Katie Baker on Mickey Calloway's Wild Sunday. All right. Uh, keen observers of baseball might have noticed that the Mets had an interesting weekend. And uh, here at The Ringer, we have no shortage of Mets fans. And from them, I have elected... Katie Baker to return to the pod and speak for them like the Lorax. Katie, welcome back.
1: See you tomorrow, Bowman.
0: Yeah. Uh, So how do you want to do this? Do you want to just (laughs) go through the whole thing or do you want to go step by step through what happened on Sunday and Monday and uh, and break down each uh, each event as it happens?
1: Well, I mean, I was actually thinking about this as, you know, when you look at the timeline of this incident, It happened on June 23rd, but it really goes back to like, as far as April, um, you know, it kind of ties in the Edwin Diaz inning restriction or, uh, pitch restrictions and all of that. So, um, so, you know, it's a, this is a, like all good stories. This one traces, has roots that go far back into the past, but yeah, I think we can start by the, um, you know, the, the more current happenings that took place, uh, just a couple of days ago.
0: Yeah. Okay. So like you said, the Mets... Okay. So in 1962 the Mets <laughs> lost a, no, uh on Sunday the the Mets uh lost to the Chicago Cubs. Uh it's been an ongoing subplot all season that the Mets and their manager Mickey Callaway are whether this is his idea or if this is coming down from somewhere from above uh God only knows, but the uh the rule is they're not going to use Edwin Diaz. They're all world closer who they paid dearly to acquire from Seattle this past offseason. Uh, they're going to use him for one inning at a time. And so uh, on Sunday, uh, Callaway brought out Seth Lugo, who, you know, he's a major league quality reliever for a second inning of work. Lugo blew a lead. They lose the post game media availability with Callaway gets testy when he's asked about the decision not to go to Diaz. Uh, this is a question that has been brought up and he has answered dozens and dozens of times this season. I think you know he, he's right to be a little frustrated, but I I also think the the beat reporters are right to continue to ask this question because it continues to be an issue. Um, yeah,
1: and and it sounds like I was actually trying to find video of the actual post, like of that actual part of it before the incident. Um, and I was having trouble that maybe I was just searching poorly, but it sounded like they had, someone had said, are you allowed? Like had used the word, like, are you allowed to do this? And it kind of, you could see the, the tweet that I read describing it said that you could like see Mickey's eyes kind of flash a little bit. Um, mm. so I could see how that could be the little, you know, it's a totally fair question given the fact that they've, they've addressed the fact that that's, Um, their institutional decision. Um, But obviously, you know, it's not just this. It it seems, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but it seems like there's been other times throughout the season where um, decisions, you know, related to pitching haven't necessarily been made by him.
0: Yeah. So at the end of the scrum, uh, it breaks up. Everybody's going back to the clubhouse and Tim Healy of Newsday, uh, who's been a guest on the shows, just calls out, see you tomorrow, Mickey, as Callaway walks away and this is, you know, beat reporters say hello and goodbye to, to coaches and managers across all sports. And apparently, you know, Tim Healy didn't think any of this, but this was the worst fucking thing in the world because Cowboy came back and started yelling at him. He yelled, don't be a smart ass motherfucker. Uh, he said he tried to get Healy removed from the clubhouse, uh, said, get the fuck out of here. We don't need that bullshit uh, to Healy, who, of course, is a member of the BBWA and is entitled to to do his job as long as he's acting in a a professional manner and uh is this where it gets weird or has it gotten weird already it's
1: it's already gotten weird so i've you know when you when, when you start reading the the reports that the you know the trigger here was the see you tomorrow mickey and so i'm thinking like oh he said it in the same cadence as like you know like nice game pretty boy or like I don't know, like keep the change, you filthy animal. Like, so, (laughs) so that's what I'm thinking. And then, and then I read a report that said, I mean, who knows this is coming from Healy himself, but I have no reason not to believe that he truly was just saying, see you tomorrow. Um, so that is where it gets weird that that was the, uh, that that was the, you know, what set everything off from there. So
0: what gets set off is apparently Jason Vargas starts staring at, at Tim Healy and, uh, Healy asks if everything's okay, and Vargas confronts Healy. Some reports said charged. Apparently, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but he did say, "I'll knock you the fuck out, bro." And uh, took before steps. he took a step yes. toward him, yeah,
1: <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think also reports that said that you know Noah Syndergaard was throwing his body you know into the fight. I think were also a little overblown, but he was among the players that were kind of. um, you know, stepping in a little bit involved in
0: keeping the peace yeah, Yeah. (laughs) such as it is. Oh, I I did want to say this before we got too far afield from this. It's a pity this happened in 2019 and not in like uh, 2010, 2011, like right when everybody was starting a blog, because I could see like, See you. See it tomorrow, Mickey. Being the name of a Mets blog that gets picked up by like ESPN sweet spot and ends up landing like four different writers in beat writer jobs or MLB front offices. Like that's just the classic yes. thing that, uh, that
1: uh, yeah, you name a blog like, after. S-Y, like as S Y T M reported. Yep. S Y T M. Yep.
0: <laughs> um. So the other thing is like I had no idea Jason Vargas had this in him. I, I don't know Jason Vargas, but I, I would have, like, if a Mets player was going to try to fight a reporter, I would have guessed for, like, it would have taken me a million guesses to land on on Jason Vargas.
1: I like the, I, I kind of wonder what would have happened if if Healy hadn't made eye contact, like, if he didn't know that he was staring at him all that time, and he just <laughs> starts staring progressively harder and harder. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, the thing, you know, I am ai happen to be a connoisseur of... Um, you know, reporter brawls. And yes, a, this is a, why,
0: this is a large yeah. part of the reason I wanted you to have, to well, be here for this a,
1: you know, as a, and as a, in your position as a, as a Philadelphia person, you're probably, you know, the most exposed to them than anyone. But, um, but, you know, I think a lot of times the difference is that, you know, unless you're going back to the, the old days, a lot of times it's journalists on journalist crime or journalists on, you know, in the case of the Eagles, a little bit of like journalists on PR. Um, person, you know, altercations, and so, um, you know, so this being the actual manager, it just ramps it up, especially given what's going on with the Mets and just the you know pressure and scrutiny that callaway has been under. And then, you know, we haven't even we haven't even mentioned the the big BVV yet. So there's just so many. It just it was like this kind of thing that would have been. Well, the thing is, it wouldn't have happened on a normal team. So, you can't, so I can't even say it would have come and gone on a normal team. Um, but you know, with the Mets, it's not just this like fight. It's like it, it taps into all the issues that the team is having, um, both on the field and, you know, the, the puppetry above it. Yeah.
0: And it's just having this happen. So like, it's just so aggressive and that's the, the big thing. Like, obviously this is funny, but also it's, incredibly embarrassing for the people involved and particularly for Fargus and Callaway, or at least it ought to be because like, I've had disagreements with, with players and coaches and they've, you know, there's been anger involved in some of those back and forth as we've gone through that. But like to get to a point where you're threatening physical violence or like threatening to kick a reporter out, uh, you know, you're. It's just a, a complete loss of control. Yeah. That uh, it, you know, it's. I mean, you're a, a long time uh, devotee of John Tortorella. Like, have you For seen that. anything like this? You know, I, I can't remember anything like this
1: happening. Even
0: like dating back to like the how McRae.
1: I have a mental image of torts being like held back in a hallway, but I think that was like against another coach or like another player. Yeah, that was the, that was
0: the <laughs> was it who Pittsburgh? was coaching the Flames back then. No, I th- I thought it was the yeah, it was when he was coaching the Canucks. There was some
1: Yeah, but I mean even even he with his and then John Tortorella is an NHL coach who is kind of known for his prickly um but magnificent um post game interviews with media. But yeah, I mean in that case it's almost like like I would almost it would almost make more sense if Mickey exploded right then and there when someone said, Are you allowed to do this? Um the fact that yeah. it was just, you know, percolating and that literally a you know a a a classic greeting, um, in society was enough to, um, to light the flame, you know, and, and I, like, I I really do think it speaks. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that like what a day later we start getting all these reports about how, you know, Brody is sitting on the couch, um, calling the shots about his former client, Jacob deGrom. Um, we're going to (laughs) get, so, you know, he obviously is, uh, you know, as much as, as much as, I mean, the problem is there's so many things with Callaway that you blame him for throughout the season, and then you start to wonder like what decisions are even his and what aren't. And that's not that's not to rid him of blame or anything like that, but just it, it you know, it just speaks to the fact that maybe there's even more that, that isn't being let on yet and I'm sure will.
0: Yeah. The so the following day, as you might imagine, there was a, a reckoning. Uh the Mets apologized. Uh, Coway addressed the, the media in a second scrum in which nobody was yelled at in Philadelphia. Uh, two things stick out about this. Um, the first is that he forgot to, to either apologize or to say that he'd ap- talk to Healy and apologize to him. Um, and then had to call everybody back down to the clubhouse shortly before first pitch to say, oh, yeah, by the way. Uh, this happened the second thing she said well billy martin punched a reporter right and, and, like this is my apart from like see you tomorrow mickey being such a great uh name for a blog the invo- the invocation of billy martin
1: is a ludicrous bit like is that even self-defense it's, it's like I, just when you think that baseball people like don't have enough just complete obsession with the past like they find a way to you know ram it into like a new area of of the sport which is <laughs> the you know media manager relationship because don't we all want to go back to you know just fist fights breaking out and um but yeah I love that that I love that 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 was like the preeminent message of the first press conference and then wasn't it kind of like a, a like an hour and a half before the second one was even called
0: yeah it was it had just been like oh wait he didn't actually say he apologized. Um. Yeah, it's just like it would be one thing if he had invoked somebody like I'm thinking like Earl Weaver, or Leo DeRocher, you know, somebody who was uh sort of understood to be like cranky but not a genuine Hall of Fame asshole <laughs> like uh like Billy Martin was. Like that's just that's not the the managerial role model I I would seek to emulate. Like there's a a difference between sort of being crotchety and old school, and right. there's and you know, there's an element to a coach or a manager, certainly if they win can get away with doing that. And it, and it actually comes off as sort of gruff and endearing in some cases. Uh, but just like, no, I'm just like, he's just out there saying, well, at least I'm not punching people. Like, <laughs> like this is, this is a, not the standard to which, uh, this is a, uh, a, a Meg Rowley line that I'm going to steal, but like, this is a workplace, you yeah. know, <laughs> this is, yeah. this is a weird workplace, but a, a workplace nonetheless. And I can't imagine, that kind of behavior, just sort of like trying to shrug it off. It's just very, very strange.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and you know, I haven't done like a huge amount of baseball reporting, but what I have, you know, what I have done where I've been in the clubhouse, I mean, it's a very unique experience, you know, for the, for reporters just in the way that they hold media availability. I mean, you just, you're just, standing in the middle, you know, you're, you're just milling around Mm -hmm. for so many hours. Standing around waiting
0: for, yeah.
1: Like, you know, other, other sports, you know, you're, 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 you know, every sport you're doing a lot of standing around awkwardly, but in baseball, it's the way it's set up is you're, you're truly in there for hours, just kind of, you know, looking into the middle distance, um, you know, trying to, you know, trying not to trying to figure out how long you have before someone sits down that you can, you know, put, pounce on them. And, but, so I just think about like the dynamics even now, um, obviously, you know, I'm sh- many of the other writers respect Tim healing and everything, but it just must be such a strange environment to be in where you're already spending so much awkward time together. Um, yeah. and now you're adding this to it.
0: It's like baseball itself. <laughs> that there's the dead time is, is what makes it, uh, makes it special all right so now we're gonna get to to your favorite part of the story I, I think is the the mike puma report from the new york post that brody van wagenen the mets general manager uh had called a member of the mets support staff during game in order to get callaway to take degrom uh out of the game his hip had cramped up and i think the the trainer had had been out to see him and he continued to pitch anyway and uh uh deGrom came out and this might have been what teed up the the reaction, you know, if your theory is correct that that the word allowed had uh had set Mickey Calloway off so much because this is, I mean, first of all, strictly speaking, this is against MLB rules. Uh that you're not you know, the dugout is technically not allowed to have any communication um with the outside world. With the front office, yeah, with the outside yeah. world. Um but it's just it makes Callaway look yeah, you know, completely powerless in a situation where, and especially where he... because, like
1: during, like when that happened, like if I recall correctly, Degrom was like pretty pissed. Like he wasn't like mm-hmm. he, he kind of. I think even after the game, he still said, you know, I, I didn't think he should have taken me out. Like so, then all of a sudden, it sets up almost this you know micro narrative. Like is Degrom? What does Degrom think of Callaway? And you know, even though it wasn't necessarily Callaway's decision, um, and you know, I'm sure Degrom well I don't know maybe he doesn't know but sure he's aware of how things work but um like I said it just kind of casts like a whole new um element to all of this and that's before we've even talked about you know, you've got Brody and then you've got the Wilpons. and it's like who is who's managing who here
0: yeah this is the the what informs everything and that's why I made the joke about this going back to 1962 is that it's just the Mets have been bizarrely dysfunctional on and off ever since then uh comprehensive dysfunction is the uh the phrase i've got written down in my notes there's like this turtles all the way down element to the to the weirdness in the way the mets are are run that like calloway's in calloway's a pretty conventional manager but he's behaved in in what could charitably be described as unconventional ways recently Birdie van Wagner is a very unconventional choice for general manager the wilpons are total fucking weirdos and (laughs) so they're very conventional sports owners (laughs) uh yeah i wish that were not as true as it is um but there's this sort of there's this confused chain of command and uh all these egos playing against each other and that just can't be a nice i mean i think the if if this sort of spills over onto the field the phillies like you know couldn't Find the right end of the bat for weeks, and they dropped 13 runs on the on the Mets last night, and just that just almost makes makes uh you know this this would have it wouldn't have gone away, but I think the immediate feeling would have been a lot better if if they hadn't just gotten torched by a team that has no idea what it's doing right now.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say like I think one thing that makes this you know even more frustrating, or a few things, um, one being the fact that you know, the, like this isn't a year where the Phillies have like already run away with with things and it's kind of, everyone's just battling amongst themselves or, you know, the other teams in the in the division are playing, are giving other teams a shot. And then you have the fact that like for two years now, the Mets have had a young talent on the team who's had kind of a, you know, a monstrous season um, in DeGrom and now Alonso. And there's like, all Pete Alonso would like rather be playing that.
0: professional lacrosse. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I should say. <laughs> wow, somebody already, to,
0: somebody already read my piece. I got up. I got up first thing in the. Well, you know. Well, I, let's I, be honest. I, I, you have
1: the, admit it. You have a you have a Google Reader uh, or a Google alert for the name Pete Alonso because you're secretly yeah, yeah, shot. Florida Tennessee.
0: Florida man uh,
1: picks up lacrosse stick. <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: anyway, go on.
1: But yeah, no, I mean, it, it, so, you know, to your point, it just, it kind of compounds on the fact, you know, and, you know, now they're playing the Phillies who um, obviously have had a terrible season themselves. And you can argue over whose season has been worse based on expectations and, and all that. But... Um, can you? <laughs> I mean, you tell me, but... I, I don't just, know, Bobby had had some thoughts about this. Yeah, I was going to say, Bobby had some, some real thorough thoughts. Um, but, you know, I... It just it you it's like it, it it makes it impossible to even enjoy what should be these like super enjoyable performances by their promising young players. And I don't I won't even say their future because I've just lost all ability to like see into the future when it comes to the team. It's I'm so you know it's just there's always something in the present that's distracting, and I'm sure is distracting everyone in the clubhouse as well. That's the
0: the we honestly that's the weirdest thing about this. Like this Mets regime, um dating back to really the yeah you know, the the World Series team and Matt Harvey falling apart, like what did the Bobby Valentine Red Sox go? Didn't they lose like ninety games or something?
1: yeah, I was actually thinking about I was thinking about the Matt Harvey just in the sense of like the opposite you know taking a guy out of the game problem for the Met like kind right. of iconic problem for the Mets.
0: <laughs> So yeah, these these hugely dysfunctional teams like the, you know, the 2012 Red Sox finished 69 and 93 and finished dead last. And the Mets are in fourth place, but they're like not all the way out of it. They're only a game out of third. They're five games under 500. They're just sort of an average to slightly below average team. Yeah. Because they've made a lot of smart moves. They've got so many talented players and it's just like this they're too talented to just be a complete disaster. So they have to be this somehow weirder version of a, a mediocre poorly run team.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also just like, the, it it, it kind of comes out of like, if they had, if they had won that game the other night, I think it would have been like, what, like their third straight win or something like that. If they'd won the game, it just would have been business as usual. Maybe a few pieces about how they're, you know, on a good, on a good tear. Um And instead it's, it's not even like i don't i guess it's 180 degrees technically but it feels like it's spun off into like a whole other you know vortex of just like why is this happening and why is there so much commotion out of kind of nothing um and the reason is because it's not nothing because it's a, a constant problem and um both this season and then like you've said since you know, the advent of, of the team
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, with, you know, a few exceptions here and there, but it's, you know, it's funny. And like, I, I don't even kind of mind it anymore because um I don't know, it's, it, it's expected and it just is, it doesn't like bother me as much, you know, it bothers me when it, when it starts to, you know, affect the team in a, in a position that matters, but Here's, I just don't really know. I it think it's like,
0: if you can't be good, be entertaining, right? <laughs> right. For good or, I mean, they, for they, good like, or ill. Be
1: good. So I guess that's the frustration is it's not like right. they're a bumbling, you know, team of like scrappy guys. And, and this is just, you know, the chaos of, of that situation. It's like, it just feels like deja vu in like a really dumb way.
0: I mean, it's just, I think their, their core of players is at least as talented as the Phillies, for instance. Um. And they're just, you know, they're not spending enough to, to surround that core of players with, you know, a full roster. And, you know, this, if teams, if a manager loses a clubhouse and the team's winning, you hear about it years after the fact. Like, for instance, Billy Martin, who you know, managed the Yankees to great success in the 1970s. Um, and I don't know, it's just, this is, this shouldn't be a bad team. And it, they just keep getting in their own way, and it just feels like the lack of spending and the confused leadership structure, and all the you know the the weird hires. Um, this is going to shock you, but it all goes back to ownership. Yeah, that, or at least that's what I think. But
1: well, and speaking of of hires, like the other thing I, I just realized I had in my little timeline that I skipped past was the fact that. You know they have a new pitching coach um, who's I think 82 years old. 82 years old. You know, no, you know all respect to the octogenarians in the world. And um, but I I just googled him, and the the top three story headlines are number one, what's driving Mets new pitching coach to keep at it. Number two, Phil Regan not <laughs> let- <laughs> I- as opposed to what. <laughs> number two, he's not letting the game pass him by and number 3 there's a mound of difference how pitching has changed in the last 50 years with a picture of him in his in his mets finery so you know it, it just all these things taken together in the timeline just paint a wonderful picture of a of a beautiful season as always
0: the literary things you can't make, can't make up they shake up their coaching staff and hire guys named bones and the vulture <laughs> so
1: which i you know if you put it that way i fully support it
0: yeah that's it's pretty metal all right. I think we've gotten our fair share of laughs out of this and then some. Uh I appreciate you coming on and lending your expertise in uh in uh coach versus media meltdowns and uh the Mets weirdness and, and all that. And it's always fun having you on.
1: Yeah, thank you. And to and to give a random plug to one of my favorite ringer articles ever that's adjacent to the subject. Um, John Gonzalez, our colleague, oh, yeah. wrote the the all time oral history of the Eagles press box fight that I was referring to earlier. So um, definitely worth a read on a on a warm summer day.
0: Yeah, go read that. Also, Claire McNear wrote about this this Mets uh, fiasco. So if you can't get enough, uh, you should read her take on it. Uh, that's up on the site right now. Um, and you should go read Katie's uh, article about the manic Rabel brothers and their <laughs> weird, uh, you know. <laughs> Um, we'll talk about this off air, the (laughs) fascinating set of personalities that that you seem to have run into.
1: It has, it has the words Pete Alonzo in it. So it's relevant. Yep. Yeah. It's a baseball story.
0: All right. Thanks for coming. on. I'll talk to you later.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering, even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug in your speaker and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. My Sonos Beam is just one sleek looking device that sits on my TV stand. It took like a couple minutes to set up and unpack. Uh, I can plug in Audible, Spotify, TV audio, pretty much everything I listen to and control it all on my phone. It's awesome. And if that sounds awesome to you, go to Sonos.com to learn more. This is a very special occasion uh, in the, the history of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, my next guest has written an article on Fangraphs.com called Lance Lynn, AL Pitcher War Leader. And uh, any article with that title deserves some mention on the show. So it is my pleasure to welcome for the first time, Craig Edwards. Craig, welcome to the show.
2: Glad to be here.
0: So uh, as uh, frequent listeners to the show... uh might know I am a huge fan of Lance Lynn uh and now so too apparently is uh, Fangraph's War and the Texas Rangers. So what is uh what is Lance Lynn doing that is uh, allowing him to be uh you know to to top the the AL pitcher war leaderboard.
2: Oh yeah, he's got a lot of sweat going on and uh that's very helpful to him. He he he's sort of he, he's sort of you know uh, you know if you're you're a fan of him so you know he's had like you know, brief bits here and there where it looked like maybe he was going to do a little bit more and then, you know, he got hurt or something happened. Um, and and this season, um, he's sort of back to what he was maybe, you know, when 2013, 2014, the start of 2015, except instead of throwing almost, you know, 90% fastballs, he's down to maybe. 75% fastballs and uh he's incorporated a cutter which he's he's always had but it was more of a 10% pinch, and now it's a 20% pitch and it's because it's not a traditional fastball it it goes well uh in contrast to his other fastballs and he's striking a lot of guys out.
0: So you mentioned that uh you know the obviously the sinker usage usage is dropping he's working the cutter more into his repertory. That sort of fits with broad league wide trends is as pitchers try to, you know, they're, they're not really trying to get below level swings anymore. They're trying to get off the plane of swings with a slight uppercut. And this sort of fits with that trend.
2: Yeah. And I, I noticed that, that last year, um, you know, he would pitch a little bit differently with, with runners on base versus bases empty and uses sinker a little bit more. And he's still doing that this year, except all the percentages are about 10% down. Um, on the sinker and you know it's it's a pitch that uh, a lot of a lot of guys still use because you know it can pair pair better maybe with uh, a changeup or a slider necessarily and still be used uh, as an out pitch uh, it's not really the case for for Lance Lynn for him you know he's got that that the four seam fastball that he uses about half the time and and now he's got that cutter and so I, I think that with that that sort of fastball cutter—it's also helped him against uh, left-handers a little bit. So uh, I, I think that you know, in the past, he's just sort of stayed away from from lefties, and you know, more or less hoped that he could you know walk them or induce some sort of a a swing somewhere. And this year, he's actually been a little bit bit more aggressive in, in trying to, to to get them out and and doing better against lefties is, has been a big step forward for him too.
0: So the the big, one of the shocking things about Lance Lynn being a top EAO pitcher uh, war leader board is his ERA isn't that impressive. And he's right now it's 432 and he's pitching in a hitter's ballpark in the American League. So some of that is to, to be expected. Uh, but he's also, like you mentioned, he hasn't allowed an unearned run yet. Uh, for instance, and so there are other like fluky things that, or things that that sort of look statistically fluky that are breaking his way, um, and some of that might actually be stuff that he can control.
2: Yeah, I, you know, you you look at how many runs he's given up. Usually, you know, a pitcher will have somewhere between ninety ninety and ninety five percent of their runs um, are, are going to be earned runs for Lance Lynn. It's it's currently one hundred percent, and so. You, know, you take maybe three tenths off uh, of z r a and now it's a four uh when you consider that he's in Texas you know that makes a a big difference when you're when you're factoring in um you know in- into that that higher war number um but you know that that BABIP is is up there the left on base percentage is is a little bit lower um and those are those are two things that, that sort of make up the difference between the ERA and FIP and and for Lance Lynn it, it certainly seems like when he gets runners on base he pitches a, a little bit differently um he's a little bit more more careful uh more judicious to make sure that uh you know he's not uh, giving up home runs and and a, and he's giving up weaker contact. Um, he's not giving up extra base hits as, as much um, when, when runners get on base. And so he may have a higher BABIP because of things that are going on when bases are empty and he's sort of, you know, just doing his Lance Lynn thing and throwing the ball at the guy and saying, hey, hit it if you can. Uh, when, when there's runners on base, he, he's buckling down a little bit more. And, and that, that could be a part of the cause of the higher BABIP which is sort of his fault but also, you know, part part strategy on his part to to get better numbers.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in that because one of the, like this is just your article is just a uh like everything that that you talked about would have just been bundled into luck, you know, 8 or 10 years ago. And n- one of the things that uh that this brings up is the idea of sequencing. That over a large enough sample, pitchers have more control over um, how many base runners they allow, than the order in which those base runners come, and the approach, you know, the the approach going to the Sinker more with meta on base, uh, maybe being more okay with uh allowing allowing more extra base hits, but with a lower BABIP with the bases empty. He's really turning into it really modifying his, his approach based on the situation, you know, and, and this seems like a way to get around some, uh, just another way to get around another thing that pitchers traditionally aren't seen as being able to, to control.
2: Yeah. And some of that goes back to, you know, the, you know, those old, you know, clutch discussions of, you know, or pitching to the score. And, you know, the, the general answer is like, if you can pitch this well in these situations, why not just do that all the time? Um, and you know, I think that in Lance Lynn's case, I think there's an argument to be made, um, that, that he should, you know, pitch maybe one way all the time to try and get more strikeouts. But at the same time, if he becomes more vulnerable to the home run pitching that way, then you have to pitch differently with, with runners on base. And, you know, with some guys, you would say, oh, they're, they're maybe bad out of the stretch, but that's not really the case with Lance Lynn, he's he's making different pitches and getting different results.
0: Yeah, it's you have to have the tools to to be able to do that, to be able to to use those two different approaches. Um, he's had a really interesting career over the past, really since this bit has started, because he he was just sort of a a reliable sort of number three starter with uh, with the Cardinals forever, and he yeah, he would just. Make his 30 starts and put up his ERA plus of about league average, sometimes a little bit better. He got hurt. He got, he wound up twisting in the wind in free agency before signing very late with Minnesota. And you mentioned something that I, you know, this is a drum that I had been banging that once he got up to speed after not having had a full spring training last year, he was really good for the Twins and the Yankees last year.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I mean, and I don't know how much of it, you know, that first month was just luck or if it was, you know, him pitching poorly or not having a spring training. But, you know, I, I do know that he did pitch poorly to begin the season and, and he did a lot better uh, as the season wore on. But it's one of those things where if you're looking at a guy's numbers in May and in June, you're still looking at a good portion of those April numbers counting. And I think that it took forever to sort of – uh Get rid of those numbers to to make his it make his stat line look look decent.
0: It, so this is he's far from the well. I guess far from the only. There's one other uh, starting pitcher in the Rangers rotation who's undergoing sort of a surprise career renaissance. I'd say something even more extreme. Um, Mike Miner's been one of the the best pitchers in the American League as well, uh, and he was he had uh, gone. I think it was three seasons without two. Either two or three seasons without pitching in the major league or major leagues after he got hurt with the Braves uh, was came out of the bullpen for a year with the, the Royals was sneakily OK last year with the Rangers and is now leading the American League in uh, ERA plus. Do you think there's something I don't know how how closely you've studied Mike Miner, but I don't know if you've uh, you know, if you could draw conclusions over there's maybe there's something that systemic that the Rangers are doing.
2: Well, I, I think that if you look at the Rangers, their their hits have come with a lot of misses. Um, you know, the, you know, this year they took a flyer on Shelby Miller, um, who's now in the bullpen, on Drew Smiley, who I think they just released. And they did the same thing with, I, I want to say, Edison Volka. So they, they've taken a lot of guys who, you know, are sort of the you know, maybe a little bit riskier and they've succeeded actually on the, the sort of cheap end of the free agency with minor last year and Lynn this year. And, um, Lynn is, it's, it's sort of, uh, like if you want to draw parallels, um, you know, you look at, uh, what minor did with, uh, the Royals in relief. And, and I think sometimes, uh, with the way that p- pitchers are, are conditioned, they're sort of conditioned to, um, you know go the five six seven innings whatever it is so that you you sort of hold you hold things back and you know once you're forced into relief you 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 give whatever it is that you have and it's generally your best stuff and i think that 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 may have helped minor become a better pitcher um while he was in kansas city and moving back to the rotation he was able to you know, he obviously had his, his arm strength built up a little more after the, after missing that time. And he was able to use some of those tools to tools that he could get, you know, an out when he needed it in the bullpen and, and take that over to starting pitching. And then that's a, a little bit what Lance did at the start of his career. You know, he was, he was, you know, like you said, he was this, this workhorse pitcher and they put him in the bullpen right away. And, you know he was a guy who everyone thought you know out of the draft i want to say you know looked like a guy who was going to pitch in the low 90s and then all of a sudden he was pitching in the high 90s out of the bullpen and then he comes back to the rotation and he obviously loses a few miles per hour but uh i think that yeah it's it's one of those situations where going to the bullpen at some point in a player's career can sort of refine the really good things that that the player has and, and help them when they if they can move back into the rotation. Um whether the Rangers have a secret sauce, I don't know. I, I think that I uh there's another article on on Lynn, I want to say on uh, uh I can't say for sure where it was, but they they mentioned that Lynn had had dropped his arm slot a little bit and and that may be making a difference for his cutter. So if that's something that the organization was able to work with 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 Lynn and sort of maybe convince him that he needed to, to uh throw his his cutter more than, you know, all, all credit, you know, not all credit, but credit to the Rangers for that. And for, to Lance Lynn for embracing it. I
0: mean, they've, they've struggled to develop their own pitching prospects. Maybe they, they're just having better luck with these 30 something reclamation projects. Um, what else are you working on? Anything else, uh, exciting? What should we, uh, be on the lookout, uh, for, from you over the next few days?
2: Um, I just had a uh, Jose Barrios, uh, piece go up. Um, and, uh, currently working on uh the disaster that is jose ramirez uh right now so we'll see we'll see if i can figure something out
0: yeah if if you figure out what's wrong with them i'm sure the the cleveland indians would be happy to uh to learn um but until that thanks for for coming on i always enjoy talking lance lynn so i appreciate you making the time to do that
2: oh yeah uh I, i've been watching lance lynn a long time and you know he 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 comes out in the second inning. looks like he's been mowing lawns all day long. And it's, it's fun to see.
0: I love, I love a big sweaty singer bowler, man. It's uh, one of my favorite types of pitcher. All right. Craig Edwards from fan uh, Thanks so much for joining the pod. Thank you. I'm happy to welcome back to the pod, a man who doesn't play football, but he's touchdown everywhere who doesn't play baseball, but he's hit a home run everywhere. Oh, international glove, Ben Limberg. <laughs> wow,
3: <laughs> thank you for that intro. Thanks to everyone.
0: So, as uh, you might have guessed by our our little uh, intro by Pitbull, aka Mister Three Hundred Five, aka Mister Worldwide, uh, baseball is supposed. Well, it's definitely going international this weekend, and uh, has made noise about going international in other ways. Uh, so, Ben, we're we're going to talk about that. Um, do you want to do the, the Rays relocation scheme first or do you want to do uh, the London series first? Let's
3: go domestic first and well, <laughs> or at least uh, let's, let's stick on this continent and then we'll expand yes. to other continents.
0: All right. Uh, so last uh, Thursday, uh, it was reported that Jeff Passan of, of ESPN, friend of the pod, reported that the Rays were exploring a potential timeshare agreement between their current home uh, in the Tampa Bay area and Montreal. And uh, I'm curious what your immediate reaction was, like just your visceral (laughs) emotional reaction before you thought about this for more than 20 seconds.
3: It was actually similar to what it was after I thought about it, which was basically, what? (laughs) So it hasn't changed a whole lot since then. I've thought about it a lot more since then, but my initial kind of confusion has persisted and as we speak, Ray's ownership, Stu Sternberg, is giving a press conference right now where he is talking about this plan, and he is doubling down on this being a real thing that the Rays are interested in exploring. But it still sounds just so complex and like there are so many pitfalls and obstacles that would prevent this. That's pitfall, not pitbull. Oh, okay. I think and that, Tampa
0: Bay, not Miami,
3: right? Uh, crucial. I, I I understand the appeal to them, I suppose, but it seems like it would be so difficult to implement. And none of my additional thinking on this has changed my mind from my initial kind of quizzical reaction.
0: Okay, what I was going for was I was my first thought was, "Wow, this is so bizarre." And also, it would be cool to have baseball back in Montreal. And then I thought about it for for a second. And then all the things. (laughs) I I got to the end of uh, the article and realized, oh, they need not just one uh, baseball stadium publicly funded that they don't have and can't get. uh, (laughs) But this plan requires two of them.
3: Yeah. When you can't get one just ask for two instead, and maybe maybe you'll meet in the middle somehow. <laughs> yeah,
0: I've been I've been abusing the contact references recently, but why have one when you can build two at twice the price? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I get what the Rays
3: are at least thinking of doing here. Now, Sternberg is currently saying that this is not a ploy. This is not for leverage. This is not a bargaining tactic. He's not trying to sell the team. He's not trying to transfer the team. All the things that we have said and might have said and could still say, frankly, about why they're bringing up this idea. It's a time honored tactic for a team that is trying to get a ballpark or some sweetheart deal from its municipality to have a threat that they will go somewhere else, even if it's part of the time, which is the, the new wrinkle here that the Rays are bringing to this. So you have to suspect that there's some contingent thinking there going on that maybe they will extract something from Tampa Bay. But I guess, you know, the principle is we're not drawing enough in this market. It's a small market and our ballpark is inconvenient and not a place that people want to go to watch a game. So we will just have multiple markets. That's the cure for not drawing enough in this market is we will just have double the markets. I think the problem with that is it assumes that both of those markets will support the team the way that one market would and i'm not sure that that assumption holds
0: yeah i'm curious so i was reading um i was reading katie baker's lacrosse article uh this new lacrosse league uh it that's that's been started the team it's sort of like a barnstorming tour and the teams aren't tethered to an individual city and i just wonder i don't i don't know if, if having to do a timeshare like that like you'd undermine I feel like you'd undermine fan identification with the team. Maybe this is yeah. sort of a provincial unimaginative um uh, uh take but it just seems like if the team isn't entirely yours then you're not really going to get invested. Right. I mean,
3: sports are provincial, so it's a provincial take, but I think it's the right one. We're pretty parochial and possessive about our sports franchises. It's us versus them, and our city is going to beat your city. and Maybe that's sort of primitive, but that's how it's always worked. I think that's probably how it will work until we get to the Federation of Planets era, I guess. And so I, I just don't see this really happening because... Sternberg is, is just saying this afternoon, like, if we can just get the, you know, race fans come to one to two games at the trop every year. So if we can get them to compress the games that they already would have gone to into the half seasons that we will be playing there, then that'll be great because, you know, we'll compress that poor attendance into half a season and it'll be good attendance. And then we'll get good attendance in Montreal too. But. That assumes that race fans are going to want to come out and pay money to see a team that is then going to decamp to another country in the middle of the and, season. Right. And, and presumably
0: if the if Montreal gets the second half, if Montreal gets just <laughs> right. I'm, I'm just going to use hypothetical verbs, yes. know, this is never going to happen. Yes. Uh, if if Montreal is uh, gets the second half of the season, presumably they'd get the playoffs, too
3: yeah you would think and and so why would you feel a, a loyalty and allegiance to this team that is essentially just saying we're mercenaries, you know, we'll go wherever we can make money. And Sternberg is is talking a big game about how he owns a house in St. Petersburg and he likes the area and he wants baseball there and everything. But ultimately, he wants to make money, which is his prerogative. And so if I were a race fan and I knew that the team had just circled a date on the calendar and said, we're out at that point, I don't know that I would get invested in this team that I couldn't even in theory go see for the rest of that season. So I think that's the problem underlying this assumption that this might work. In theory, yeah, if you could compress your full season raise attendance into half a season and then get another city interested in the other half of the season, sure, that makes sense. But I just don't know that you would get anything like the kind of loyalty that you would get when you're there all season. And I don't know what this would mean for TV revenues and broadcast deals. Seems kind of complicated. I, it just, for so many reasons, Where, I yeah. mean, play Players where, aren't going to want to play for this team.
0: Where would the headquarters be? Would you, you know, you'd have to get some sort of visa to work in yeah. uh, to work in Montreal for half the year. D- does the front office decamp? Because, like, it's expensive enough. You know, Montreal is not a cheap place. And even if you're, you know, when we were talking about Slack or talking about this in, in Slack last week, yeah, um, I think it was Claire set, brought up, like, oh, you know. A millionaire can can buy a second home. Like the Rays don't employ millionaires. They, you know, <laughs> they, they cut you <laughs> once you yeah, once you reach your second year of arbitration. So like if you're trying to to live essentially a major league lifestyle in two different cities at once, that's a tremendous financial drain if you're even if you're making mid mid to high six figures. Yeah. And it's just all of these, you know, what do the beat writers do? You know, like, does MLB.com hire two half, you know, two sets of of halftime beat writers? <laughs> Won't anyone
3: think of the beat writers? <laughs> Someone I to mean, I did. I'm, you
0: know, some <laughs> there's lots of discussion of beat writers on this pod, don't worry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean,
3: I in theory, I should be predisposed to like this plan because I'm a dual citizen of these two countries, I've got passports to the U.S. and Canada, this would be like my national, international team. I would see myself in this team that is splitting time between these countries, but I just don't know that this would work as a model for a franchise. There just seem to be too many issues, and look, the Rays are tied to the chop until 2027 anyway with this stadium lease that they haven't been able to get out of, and it doesn't sound like they'll be able to get out of, so all of this is probably deferred to that point anyway, and by then some other resolution will maybe have suggested itself. And I I think that there are legitimate problems with this franchise. I mean, I, I understand why they want to do something different. They don't want to stick with the status quo because they're not drawing and that's not good. And so it's only natural for them to look for some solution. And of course, they're the Rays and they're the team that does wild and creative things. But essentially, using... Tampa Bay as the opener for their season and then going to Montreal for, for the rest of the season. I, I just don't know that that would work as well as it does with relievers and starters.
0: So there are two two things that I want to touch on before we move on. One is the it's sort of the, the chicken and egg argument for why the Rays aren't drawing because – uh, they're they're not drawing, so they don't spend. But they don't spend, so they're not always as competitive. Although they're winning now with a rock bottom payroll. Yeah. But a lot of the the issue seems to be that the trop is just not a convenient place to get to. Right. That it's just not accessible, and this is a, a problem for fans who get out of work at five or five thirty and try to make a seven o five first pitch, and or to get home in time to to uh, get the kids to bed in time for school tomorrow, and so. This is all of this is, of course, predicated on building a new stadium. And if you build a new stadium somewhere closer to downtown St. Petersburg or or Tampa, it's it stands to reason that they draw more. I guess the only the only clever thing about this is the idea that both of these cities require a dome, Montreal, because it's wild cold in the at the beginning of the season, and Tampa because it gets so hot. But you could, arrange the schedule in such a way that you wouldn't have to build a dome, I don't know how much that would really save you.
3: Yeah. Sternberg Um, is saying that they're envisioning two brand new open-air ballparks, and I don't know whether that means they'd have retractable roofs. You'd think they would need to, given the weather in both of these markets. And if you're going to build
0: a retractable roof, why not just build the one and and put the team either in Tampa or in Montreal?
3: Right. (laughs) Yeah. I don't
0: know. If he's he's saying you can get it Done at a reduced cost. Like Eric Garcetti's out there saying Los Angeles is going to make a billion dollars off the Olympics in 2028. So there's like mm-hmm. there's nothing preventing people with a vested interest in subsidizing sports construction from lying about the effects. Because mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, there's been a, a wide enough uh uh swath of, of public research saying, And this isn't a worthwhile investment for cities.
3: Yes, he's already talking about the economic impact of having Montreal tourists come to Tampa Bay. And you always hear the, well, this will revitalize the city and it will bring in so many jobs and uh, so many tourists and the downtown will be new and developed. And usually uh, all the studies, except the ones that are paid for by the people that are trying to get their ballparks funded, usually suggest that it doesn't pay for itself. And, And there is some intangible value, I think, to a city having a team, so I don't want to completely discount that, but it's hard to make that purely economic argument. And and I think there are Rays fans. I mean, their, their TV ratings are, are fairly good, so it's just that no one wants to go to the games in that ballpark. So if they could get a better ballpark in a better situated area down there, then maybe things would be okay. And and it's certainly a whole lot less complicated than this two-city plan, which I just can't imagine coming to fruition. But, you know, kudos to them, I guess, for coming up with a a new way. For being creative, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yeah, it's it's a different idea, at least, even if it's not likely to happen.
0: Yeah, the other thing I wanted to to bring up is I really do wish that Major League Baseball would return to Montreal just because I think it would be cool to have. Like, I I wrote about this when I did the quick blog post about it last week. Like, there's a – a neat like sort semi dormant linguistic tradition of, you know, French language baseball in Quebec that I mm-hmm. think uh, would be fun to revitalize. And there's so much history, you know, talk about like weird, unique baseball traditions. If anybody out there hasn't read Jonah Carey's, uh up, up in a Yes. You know, it's very, uh, it's a, an exhaustive history of the, of the expos, but also I think really encapsulates a very cool, you know, a, a very cool baseball culture that, when baseball culture seems a little standardized nowadays.
3: Yeah. I'd like to see baseball back in Montreal. I would just kind of like to see it on a full-time basis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Unfortunately, my French is so rusty, I can't remember how to say shit or get off the pot. Uh, so but that's what we want them to do. Uh, so speaking of ill-advised ideas and sending baseball uh, in the American League East to the nations of the of the Commonwealth, uh, the Red Sox and the Yankees are going to play a series this weekend in London Stadium, uh, which is you, you want to guess where that is?
3: <laughs> I don't know much about okay. soccer but I can I can guess
0: okay it's in London uh it's home mm-hmm. of West Ham United they have converted it at great expense into a major league facility uh which apparently but not at such great expense that uh they the sight lines apparently suck the tickets mm-hmm. are really expensive the center field seats are white which uh <laughs> Not ideal.
3: <laughs> hey, it's their first time playing baseball there. It's just, a, you know growing pains, learning curve.
0: Yeah, cricket ball is red. Maybe maybe we should use a red baseball instead of a uh, instead of white. Um. Yeah, Charlie Finley used
3: what orange baseballs, right? So yeah, some like precedent.
0: That. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate this. I really do. <laughs> I am all for. I've been writing about and advocating for the growth of baseball in Europe since before the Ringer existed, and. The UK is not it. That's not like they're there. The difference between this and the NFL going to London is that there are football fans, American football fans in, in the United Kingdom. And there just aren't that many in of uh, uh, baseball fans. Well, there are, there are like nascent and and thriving. Uh, you know, you talk about unique baseball cultures. Uh, Italy has had a semi pro league, obviously the Netherlands. Um, so like a lot of the, the Dutch players, come from the Caribbean, but there are, you know, a lot of players who grew up in, uh, in Europe or were born in Europe. And, and that's sort of filtered back there. There's a, a thriving body of German American players, Max Kepler being the, the most famous. So the obvious place for this exhibition, if it was really about, you know, showing the highest quality form of the game to fans who are, you know, ready and willing to embrace and receive it, uh, Amsterdam seems the obvious uh, hmm. choice. If not that, then Berlin or Munich or Rome or Milan. Or this, like, this is a tourist trap for expats. Like, this is going on study abroad and eating McDonald's five five nights a week. It's <laughs> just, it's a short term cash grab, and uh, maybe it'll work from that perspective. But from a perspective of of like evangelizing the sport, I'm skeptical.
3: Well, I think I'm a little higher on this than you are. I don't know that this is the. And it's
0: not a high bar to clear.
3: Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> I, I think I'm higher on this than the two city raise plan, too. I, because for one thing, this is actually about to happen. I think that in general, just kind of as a blanket statement, I'm in favor of baseball trying to reach out to new markets and trying to create fans who are not already fans and to send teams over there. And one thing I appreciate about this plan is that they're not half-assing it, at least in, in the sense that they're sending the Yankees and the Red Sox and they're committed to two years. So not only are they doing Yankees-Red Sox this year, they're doing what cardinals and cubs in 2020 so they're making investment they're they're showing that this is you know the best product that they could send over there they're they're not just sending the marlins or something which i i kind of appreciate and i think i would appreciate i was going to ask
0: you about that because the the nfl sent the jaguars over over to london year after year to try to like make that london's team but we are sending you know this is the marquee rivalry
3: yeah, right. And and I think that's a good approach. And, and the NFL has had a lot of success, as I understand it, because they got in early here and, and they have a, a long history now of sending teams over there and, and of reaching out to UK fans. And baseball doesn't have that. I mean, you might think that because they have rounders, because they have cricket, maybe there's some natural interest there. I, I know that I'm kind of cricket curious as a fan, just because I'm a baseball fan and it's close enough that I am kind of intrigued by the differences and the similarities. So maybe that that makes people more interested to check this out, or maybe they think we have our own version of this anymore already, so we don't necessarily need the American version. I think that They could have done a better job of making tickets affordable and trying to sell the tickets to people who can bring their families and who... Don't have several hundreds of dollars, you know, the equivalent of that to spend on this game as first-time fans. So I think that does obviously caters to a certain economic crowd and perhaps to people who already have a vested interest in baseball. So I think that is a missed opportunity and not even a missed opportunity, but, you know, they've decided that they want to maximize the revenue in the short term. Perhaps they're being short-sighted in that sense. But I think that just having baseball on... On another territory. If you're not a fan already, I know that there is a small but dedicated UK fan community and not expats, but people who, in many cases, came across the game because it was on TV, because they used to air some of the games back in the 90s or early 2000s, which I don't think they do anymore on terrestrial TV in the UK anymore. And, and that was just, hey, it's there. And when it's there and when it's in front of you, you're inclined to check it out and see what this is all about. And so, if there's a lot of interest there's obviously a lot of interest in the sense that these games are sold out they're going to be marketed quite a bit i would think that there will be people who are baseball fans because of this series in the future i don't know how many of those people there will be i don't know whether this will move the needle in the long term in you know baseball's popularity internationally but in general i'm in favor of trying to you know settle new territory trying to introduce baseball to new people so this may not be the the best or most efficient way to do it, but I have a hard time totally slamming it because, in general, I, I like the the principle behind it.
0: You are you a the clash fan? Uh, they're
3: not a favorite, but I, okay. I enjoy them.
0: I'm I'm sick of London calling already. Just uh-huh. having watched uh, <laughs> games on ESPN the the last couple nights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, you brought up cricket have you heard of, of finnish baseball pesapallo is what they yes, call it yes in, in fact
3: in fact i talked to an official from there on a, an effectively wild episode okay. I, I love i love the sport okay yes. we're
0: going to talk about pesapallo i've just recently encountered pesapallo uh, <laughs> i i if if members of the finnish pesapallo uh, federation are listening to the show come come talk to me. We'll we'll talk to you on the show. We'll see if about getting the the team from from Helsinki over here to play a game because I I think we should just junk baseball all together and just play and play and watch baseball. Yep. It looks wild. It, um,
3: it does. It has its advantages over this sport for sure.
0: We we're talking about the home run binge. You hit a, a ball over the fence, it's not it's a foul ball, right? Yeah, in, in I don't think
3: you're you're trying to do that. And you pitch the
0: ball straight up. So the, yes, the increase in velocity, like that's Lots the of two balls in play. the two biggest problems. yep, you know, it's all about uh base running and and uh yeah, I mean, that's just all the problems with baseball solved. So, all right. <laughs> so let's uh let's bring baseball to Europe. Let's bring pesapolo to to North America. Yeah. Uh
3: exchange program.
0: I I'm all all in favor of that. All right, Me too. This has gone far enough afield. Ben, thanks for, for coming on and talking. Thank
3: you. Glad we could bring you singing back to the podcast. <laughs> Since we retired the DiPoto song, there just hasn't been enough music and song.
0: Pitbull is the source of all of my joy. So,
3: <laughs> All right. Good talking to you.
0: That'll just about do it for this week's edition of The Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Ben Lindbergh and Katie Baker for joining me today. Thanks to my special guest, Craig Edwards of Fangraphs, who you can find on Twitter at Craig J. Edwards. Thanks to Bobby Van Wagener for producing today's episode. Thanks to Mickey Calloway, Lance Lynn, and Stu Sternberg for giving us stuff to talk about. Thank you for listening. Enjoy game two of the College World Series final tonight at seven, where Kumar Rocker will try to prevent Michigan from hoisting the trophy and enjoy the rest of the week's action. And we'll see you next time.